Um, if you could, Matthew seven, uh, Matthew twenty six, verse seventeen is where we are. If you remember the first several verses of Matthew, um, they aren't Matthew twenty six. They aren't chronological. What Matthew's doing is he's trying to paint a picture because Jesus in verse two, Jesus says that he's basically going to be betrayed and he's going to head to the cross. And so that's what chapter 26 is about. And what Matthew kind of does is he goes back and forth within that last week of Jesus's life. And he's kind of taking different sections to help paint that picture of how they get to the cross. Cause that's where they're going. And remember he was a, a, an eye hand witness there and he was, totally blown away at what happened, what was going on. He didn't know Judas was going to betray Jesus. I mean, that just blindsided everybody. Um, just the actual cross. They still didn't believe it when Jesus was saying, Hey, I'm going to the cross. He said it three times. And so he's kind of reverse engineering for us. So we could follow in his footsteps, how we got there, how they got there. And so um, in verse two, Jesus says that it's two days until the Passover when he's going to die. Look at verse two in your Bible. See, it says it's two days, but then in verse six, we know from John's account that, it jumps over to Bethany that takes place like five days before the cross. So we're going back in time. And in that, that timeline, a few days before Jesus being anointed in the nearby village of Bethany and uh, by, by Mary, the brother of Lazarus, remember that. And the reason that Matthew is jumping back to earlier in the week is that he's zeroing in on how Jesus is going to be delivered up to the cross, mainly focusing on Judas's betrayal. That's the main thing he's focusing on. But there are two things that were significant about Jesus's anointing at Bethany. Number one was that uh, when she broke that costly perfume and poured it out over Jesus's head and feet, we know from the gospel accounts, it was both that Jesus said, Hey, that was preparing me for my burial, which would be within the week. And so that was one of the important things. And secondly, was Judas's response to that. What was his response when she did this, public, beautiful act of broken worship as she poured out this oil on his hair and then in his feet. And she bowed down before his feet, before him and started wiping, you know, his feet with her hair. What, what was the response of Judas? He was mad. He was angry and he was kind of in, he was that, that kind of spirit kind of got to the disciples as well as they were all like, yeah, this should have been used for the poor. But we find out that Judas really didn't care about the poor. What he cared about is that the money that would have been procured from something like that would have been put into the purse that he held. And we know from John that he was a thief. John, they didn't know this at the time. They didn't know this about Jesus, but Matthew after the fact is going back and showing us what happens and what happens immediately after that. If you that was John 12, six, by the way, it talks about him doing the money. And, and when Jesus rebukes him, he says, man, what she did was beautiful. It was preparing for my burial. And we see in verses 14 through 16, that Judas then went that night to the religious leaders who were plotting on how they might put Jesus away quietly. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver that night. When that costly perfume was broken, something in Judas's heart finally just broke. And so Judas would be one of the betrayers. 
uh, would be the betrayers. Jesus, as we're going to see and Matthew's helping us to understand how that all came about that when that costly perfume broke and that worship was given out, his heart would have nothing of it. He wanted the money and Jesus had already told his disciples. And I think he knew exactly what was going on in Judas's heart. He told him earlier, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You will love one and you will hate the other. And I know we, we go, okay, yeah, whatever. Well, the, the, the hypocrisy of his heart finally shone through. They didn't see it, but Jesus saw it. They would see it soon, but he loved money and he went after it. When he saw that stuff broken that night and he didn't get it, he went to go get his money. And so he went to the chief priest and they gave him 30 pieces of silver. We can talk about more of that later. And so as we pick up in verse 17, Matthew takes us not to two days before the Passover where the, where Matthew 26 started, but to one day before the Passover. Okay. So he went from two days to five days. Now he's back. He's one day before the Passover, which is called the first day of 11 bread. You got to follow me here. I'm sorry. It takes, if this is hard for me, I'm, I'm imagining how wonderful it is for me explaining this all to you. But there's, they're there for a feast and it's called the feast of unleavened bread. All the Jews are supposed to gather together in Israel for a seven day feast. And the, in the first day of unleavened bread uh, is, 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 is a significant day. Now to help us understand the feast, I want to give you a quick review of the feast. It's important because there's, there's spiritual significance to all this. The feast of unleavened bread was a seven day feast and it was remembering God's deliverance of the bondage uh, from their bondage of, of slavery in Egypt for the better part of 400 years. So God delivered the Jews out of slavery, out of Egypt. And he did it by a series of 10 plagues. Remember Moses came in and there were 10 plagues and that final plague broke the back of the will of Pharaoh. And he finally let them go, even though he chased after him afterwards. But in commemoration of that final plague, that final night where God finally broke the back of Israel and delivered uh, of Egypt and delivered them. The Lord commanded that on every year at the beginning of the year, starting on the 14 month, uh, 14th day of the first month, they were to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread, unleavened bread. And you can find that commandment repeated throughout the old Testament, several places. Exodus 12 is the original story, but you've got Leviticus 23, numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16. You can ask for my notes. I can give you all this later. And the reason it's called the feast of unleavened bread is that God's deliverance was to be so quick that they didn't have time for their bread to be raised, to have leavened bread. In other words, his deliverance was going to be absolutely quick and fast that that night he would bring about the deliverance of Israel. When that plague came, there wouldn't be time. And so uh, one of the requirements for the Jews looking back on that day, when they gathered for this feast is they had to remove all the leaven from their houses. They couldn't have any leavened bread to this day. They're supposed to do that. Um, and so nothing around them was to have leaven in it whatsoever. And quite often we, we, we look at the symbol of leaven and it's kind of a neutral symbol in scripture, but it, it often is associated with sin. It's often associated with, um, bad things, metastasizing. Uh, we look at that, but it's also used as an example of the kingdom of God, which grows. And so that's a good thing. And so it's kind of a neutral thing, but the idea here is that the bondage of sin would be removed. 
It's gone. Well, how does that come about? And so one, and so the first day of the feast, and this is the answer to that question. The first day of the feast, which is where we were in verse 17 was the day of the preparation for the Passover. That's what verse 17 says. The day of the preparation for the Passover, which was the day before the Passover. Now, listen, a Jewish day, follow me here. A Jewish day is different than ours in that they go from sundown to sundown. That's a day. And so on the 14th would be the day of preparation, which was a Thursday on that week. And so Thursday night would actually begin the Passover. Does that make sense? That's the next day is the nighttime when the sun went down. So they would have the preparation was that day. That's where they were. The Passover was that night. And by the way, that was the night, the Passover that God sent that final plague upon Egypt, uh, where, where basically the firstborn would die. A firstborn male child, firstborn animal would die in the home of anyone who didn't have the blood of the lamb on the door. And so the first day of the feast was the day of preparation when the lambs were actually killed in commemoration of that day, when they had to quickly shed the blood of the lamb, make this food, go into the house, put the blood on the door and the destroyer would come and pass over them. And so the Hebrews were told by the Lord in Exodus 12 to kill a spotless lamb at twilight. And in verses 7 through 13, let me read them for you. This is Moses commanding them as this first Passover is happening. It says, and then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the door and the two doorposts and the lintel of the house, which in which they eat it. And they should eat that flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You're like, what is going on there? It's to be totally consumed. Not you eat all of it, but it will, none of it will last is the idea. The whole lamb is going to be offered. Does that make sense? It's not part of it. Nothing's left. And he goes on and you shall let none of it. Verse 10 remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. And in this manner, you shall eat it. How shall you eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. Does this sound familiar with anything we've been reading about the end times? It's a foreshadowing of that. How God is going to come and destroy the world and its gods and every, everything in it. He is going to enact vengeance upon it. If you look at Revelation and all the plagues and the two witnesses and all this stuff, it is the fulfillment. It's, it's really the, the finale of what we saw back in this time. And so that's a shadow what we're reading here. And he goes for all past the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Just says his name. 
How awesome. In verse 13, underline this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house, uh, on, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Wait a second. I thought it was like, who, who's doing the judgment here? That's a very interesting question. Well, God is doing the judgment. I don't know how he goes about it, but because I'm the one executing people. I'm the one enacting judgment because of my name. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the house is where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And what happens when the blood is appropriated? I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, what protected the Hebrews? What was the only means of their salvation? So to speak, what if they said they believed in God and they didn't put the blood of the lamb on the door? What if they went to synagogue and they gathered together, did all those things. They didn't put the blood on the lamb, the lamb on the door. I don't know but I'm not testing. So this was called the day of preparation because it was the day that they slaughtered the lambs and all of Israel gathered together on that day. And at twilight, they killed all the lambs and they prepared the meal that they would eat and noticed it was to be in haste. And it's kind of interesting that as their, their salvation was at hand, they were to be ready for their salvation. There was to be no leaven in, in and around them. Right? So too, as we look forward, what do we look forward to his soon return? What is Jesus constantly saying to us? Be ready, be ready. Be ready. Your salvation draws near. You don't know when it's happening. It'll come like a thief. Be ready. No leaven. Get it out. Be a purified people. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? And so on the first day of unleavened bread, the 14th week of Nisan, Thursday that week, the lambs would be slain. Then that night, again, the Jewish day starts at sundown. The Passover would begin and they would gather together. Jesus and his disciples would be gathering together in that upper room to eat that final meal together. And so as we pick up in verse 17, it says now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying kind of, I paint a picture, doesn't it? He came to the disciples came to Jesus saying, now they're asking what, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Verse 19 and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Luke tells us that was Peter and John that went to go prepare the meal. So what does that mean? They went and they made arrangements for the room. They talked to this person they slaughtered the lamb. They prepared the meal, probably them and, and some other people are together there. And so here they are. And what I find is interesting, little side note, just as me, a Matt thing I'm going on here is that acts 12, 12, you find out whose house that is. That's actually Mark, the gospel of Mark's it's his mom's house. It's so interesting how things are all connected together. Mark 12, uh, acts 12, 12 says that. 
that's where that that's their house. And he also called, he's also called John Mark and he wrote the gospel of Mark. He was a young man who runs away naked when Jesus is arrested. Remember that he had just sat there with a cloth and then all of a sudden they went to grab him. They grabbed his clothes yet. He went around, ran away naked. So that's his experience. He's the nephew or cousin, depending on the translation of, of Barnabas. Remember Barnabas and Paul, they went out together on a missionary journey. And what did Mark do? in the middle of that first journey, he bailed. It was too rough for him. So he left. And then in Acts 15, uh, you find out that Paul wants to go ahead and go on another missionary journey. And Barnabas goes, Hey, I want to take John Mark along with us. And what happens? Paul's like, I'm not having it. And the division became so intense with them that they split and went ways. Don't worry. In the gospels later, they get the band gets back together. But (laughs) Mark abandoned Paul. So that's part of his story. Always running away, I guess. But what's cool is in the end of Paul's life, and I've shared this with you several times in, in second Timothy 411, Paul's writing to Timothy says, Hey, send Mark. Cause he's so helpful. I love that. How God grows us over time. Amen. Any of you guys running away naked? Any of you guys, <laughs> you know, ditching everything that God has called you to do? It's like, hey, there's hope. I love this. God still works on us over time. But anyways, it could have been that he went and talked to Mark as being a male representative in the home uh, in a Jewish culture. Obviously, he wouldn't have talked, you know, a guy wouldn't go and talk, go into and approach a woman. He would talk to the guy in the house. And so maybe the disciples went and talked to Mark or maybe Barnabas is there. We don't know. But anyways, they made the arrangements there and the disciples would not only meet there that night, but they would meet there in acts as well. And, and, and so this became a ministry hub for the church in Jerusalem, the upper room, pretty neat. But Jesus tells his disciple to communicate to whoever it was. My time is at hand up until this point. He'd said, my time is not yet. It's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. He repeats that all over the gospels, but now it was his time. He knew he was the lamb. It was his final night. So verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. Notice there are 12. So they're eating the pastor at this point in John 13, 21, it says that Jesus became troubled, greatly troubled in his spirit. In verse 21 in Matthew 26, it says, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, say to you, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine that being with a group of people to going through what you've gone through for possibly the better part of two years, three years, some of them. And you know, gone out and done miracles together, watched Jesus, been to all the teachings, been in the inner meetings, the inner room, all the secret conversations, all those things. You've been a part of everything. And now you're gathered together in that room and Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's there. They're eating together and he's just broken inside. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. We know in John six, Jesus already knew that he says, one of you is a devil, John six, something six sixty maybe. And it says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrow, very sorrowful. Can you imagine that? And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him, 
So well, to one another is, is it, well, is it I Lord? You're speaking to him. And so, but there, they're just questioning in John's gospel. It says that they were just totally, uh, they, they were looking at each other, wondering who that could possibly be. They had no clue. And so this was something that took them all by surprise, except for Judas. As we know, he knew what was going on. He already met with the leaders by this point. He'd already received the 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus knew all along what he had done. The rest didn't know, but Jesus saw through it the whole time. And so they were all looking at one another, wondering who it was. John 13, 22 says what Matthew doesn't tell us. And John and John does is that John is seated to Jesus's right. Now they're not at a table. They're reclining on the floor with pillows. That's how they eat. They got a low table. They kind of lie to the side and you kind of lie around a table together. That's kind of how it is. So they're kind of lining on one side and they're eating and they're dipping and all that stuff. Should try it sometime. But Jesus is lying down and John is to his right. And Peter's to his right. It's pretty interesting stuff. And what happens is that John tells us that after Jesus says this, Peter kind of gets, everybody's just, there's commotion. They're all asking, is it I kind of a thing. And Peter gets John. He's like, John, ask Jesus who it is. You know, good old Peter, right? We're going to see his life play out here real quickly. But he's like, ah. you know, he's elbowing John. And I love John's account, it's he's leaning against the breast of Jesus. He talks about himself as the one whom Jesus loved. There's just a close heart connection between them. And he gets him to ask whose it is. And he's leaning on Jesus's chest as they recline. Hey, who is it? Just John 13, 23, by the way. And he answered in John 13, uh, 23, he said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me or the one whom I give this morsel of bread to John says. And so Jesus dips the bread and gives it to Judas. Who's not on the other side of the table. He's most likely at the seat of honor, which was to his left. As many people are talking about. So he just, he dips it and he hands it to him. Now there's a lot of commotion going on. I think John picks up on it. I'm not sure everybody else does of what's going on. We, they definitely don't. And John 13, 27 through 30, it says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So I don't know who he's speaking to, if he's speaking to Satan or Judas or both, but he's saying, what you're going to do, do quickly. He knows it. He knows exactly what Judas is going to do next. What Satan was up to. He knows exactly what's going on. Nothing is getting you know, Jesus, nothing's taking Jesus by surprise here. And it goes on to say in verse 28 through 30 of John 13. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Such a dark picture there. And so they're all clueless pretty much about what's going on. Back to Matthew 26, 24, Jesus says in the upper room, when Judas took the morsel, he says, the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. He knows betrayal is coming. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? I mean, the height of hypocrisy, right? Knowing full well, asking in deception, is it I? And he said to him, you've said so. He knew right what was going on. And Jesus knew what was written about himself. He knew where he was going. Look he, what he said there. He said, the son of man goes and is written of him. He goes, I know where I'm going. I know I'm going to the cross. I know I'm going to be, my beard is going to be pulled out. I'm going to be beaten in the face. So I hear, you know, I'm going to be, have a crown of thorns. They're going to hit me. They're going to say who prophesied. I'm going to be crucified. All these things. He knew all this suffering that was coming upon him temporarily in short order. But he also knew the glory beyond for the joy set before him. He endured. He knew the resurrection was at hand. He knew the glorification was at hand. He knew the eternal plan of the father, that he'd be reigning and ruling in the, you know, in, uh, in his kingdom forever. He knew that he would be redeeming for himself a people by his sacrifice. He knew the big picture. He knew it was happening, but he said, look at, I also know What's going to happen to you, Judas? It would be better if you were never born. What's he speaking of there? What do you think he's speaking of? Hell. Punishment. That's exactly what he's speaking of. He knows what is in store for Judas. And, and, I'm, and he's just telling him straight out. I'm going to suffer a little bit and rise again, but what you're doing, it'd be better if you were never born. And Jesus knew what was going on. Jesus is speaking about the judgment of God. Judas was a hypocrite through and through. He didn't truly care about the poor. When Mary broke a costly perfume, he cared about money. He served money in his heart, even though he walked around religiously. It's dangerous, isn't it? I mean, we all have that potential. And the sad thing is you just never enjoyed any of those 30 pieces of silver. I'll say that's sad, but it's the truth of it. He went and took those 30 pieces of silver and threw them at the priest's feet or the religious leader's feet and went off and committed suicide. And then entered into real hell. So Jesus said to him, you have said so. And Judas leaves the room. Now it's the believers in the room. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing, it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here, Jesus is instituting the new covenant, a new covenant. By the way, your Bible is divided into old covenant, new covenant, old Testament, new new Testament. That's, that's how that's divided. The old, the old covenant is 
a shadow and a type a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the new covenant. It points towards the new covenant. Here, Jesus instituting a new covenant. The old covenant was full of shadows and types, but this new covenant was the substance. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, ladies, how many of you went through the book of Hebrews? Jesus is the substance of all those shadows. So we look at the priesthood of the old covenant. Who is the, who is the, who is the high priest? It's Jesus. We look at the sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice It's Jesus, the temple, the whole thing. You go on through the whole thing. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the substance of all that. The old covenant was ratified by Moses with the blood of an animal. You can read about that in Exodus 24, eight, the new covenant. Jesus says, what is ratified by the blood of an animal? No, by what all of that foreshadowed and was looking to him, his blood, the blood of the son of God, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And notice Jesus says that his blood is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. The old covenant foreshadowed this fulfillment when we're through the sacrifice, the sacrifices that they did, people's sins would be atoned for. They'd be covered, not taken away. But Jesus instituted the new covenant, not of shadows and not of types, but of substance, not by the blood of an animal, but by God's own son, not a salvation from Egypt, not a salvation from political bondage, not a salvation from all of that, but a salvation from the bondage of sin and death. And Jesus makes clear that God's grace is received one way. By faith. Through faith. That is how you receive his forgiveness, his covenant through faith in what? In his death. That through his blood, it was poured out for you that your sins would be taken away, that my sins would be taken away. Moses said to the Hebrews back in Exodus 12, 13, on that night of the Passover, he said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, the blood of Jesus Christ, the new covenant, and it makes us sealed, <laughs> makes us protected from the wrath of God. That was a foreshadowing of the blood of his son, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that whoever, whosoever believes, notice this, for, for, it was shed for many, not all, because all don't believe. For those who believe, they receive, but the, the invitation is there. Anyone who wants to come to Jesus, come. Amen. Right now, the invitation is there. Come believe upon Jesus, but God knowing that many would reject him. As he knew what would happen to Judas, the whole thing. But there are many who do believe and are forgiven. Amen. And hopefully that's us. And so whoever believes upon him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
that God's judgment for your sin, for my sin would be permanently passed over. It's a covenant of God's grace. I love that covenant. So the disciples and we who believe would remember the great grace by which God has saved us from sin. He instituted communion. It's a reminder for us. It serves as a reminder for us. And, and the symbols that he instituted that night are all throughout the old Testament. It's nothing new, but it's the bread and the cup. Those two physical reminders of a spiritual reality. Now, if you were raised Catholic, how many of you were raised Catholic? Some of some different people, they, they hold that the, that when the priest blesses it, it actually becomes the physical body of Christ and the blood, the physical blood of Jesus. That's not true. That's, that's not what he's doing. And I don't mean to, you know, to, to ruffle the feathers of those, but it's, he's speaking in symbolism here. I know he's, it sounds emphatic, but if you look at the whole context of what Jesus is talking about, the cup and the juice are not the bud, the body, the physical body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. They, they aren't. They're symbols that point us to the reality. They're shadows. They're a type to point us to the reality of Jesus. Remember in John six, after Jesus multiplies all the bread for everybody, everybody's like, yes, bread maker. We want you to be our King free food, right? And they start following him. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to preach to them. And he starts calling, he says, calling himself in John six thirty five. he says, I am the bread of life. What? I'm the bread of life. This is what he's saying. Okay. You look like a person. So we know he's talking about symbolism. You, uh, you're the bread of life. Well, what's he talking about? He goes on. He calls himself the bread that came down from heaven, equating himself with the manna of the old Testament that came down and certain and sustained the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. He says, I'm that. And now they're getting mad at him. Messing with Moses. And he tells them anyone who eats of this bread will, will live forever in verse 50 of John six. Okay, so you're telling us we got it chew on your arm or your leg. What's going on here? This is getting weird. And I'm and I'm I'm not being facetious. I'm I'm telling you what they're thinking. This is this is what they're thinking in John six. And to a Jew, you did not eat anything like that. You do not drink blood. You do not eat flesh. You don't do that stuff. And he goes on. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's verse 51. I'll just read verses 53, 58 of John six. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day for my flesh is true food and my bo- and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. John 15 about abiding in the vine. What's he talking about abiding in the vine? You're feeding on Jesus. He is your life. This is many of you got to go. This is weird. Right. He goes on to say, as the living 
father has sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Just the way I am connected to the father, you must be connected to me. See, there's symbolism here. This is everything he's talking about in, in pictures and imagery. In verse 58, he goes on and says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. You all ate the manna that came, your, your ancestors ate the manna that came down for heaven. I'm telling you that if you eat and drink of me, you will never die. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is all symbolism. And this is why in John 6, 66, it says the disciples that this is too hard of a saying. And many disciples from that day stopped following him. What Jesus was saying to them and most did not have spiritual ears to hear. And I pray that you have spiritual ears to hear this this morning is that to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood is to believe. That's what it means. You must believe, believe in me, believe in my death, believe that my blood covers your sin totally and completely. It satisfies the wrath of God. You believe in my finished work. That is the work of God. That's the work that you must do in order to be saved is believe. Period. And he gives us physical reminders to look at, to point us to him. The bread, his body that was broken. It is not his body. It is a picture of his body. The cup is not his blood. It is a picture of his blood that by faith, we have appropriated. Make sense? Think about baptism. I'm, I'm hitting it over and over because this is, people can't separate these two. It's really important that we don't trust in the cup. We trust in what, who the cup points to. We don't trust in baptism. We trust in who the, the baptizer. Think of baptism. The water does nothing. It's a symbol. John said, man, I baptize you with water for the remission of sins. But one is coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to put on, who will baptize you with water and with what? Fire. He will either give you eternal life or eternal punishment. That's the one you need to fear. And the water is a symbol of eternal life. It's a work of the spirit that he does within us. The regeneration that the spirit does. He makes a new creation. You see, we're not baptized and it saves us. The spirit saves us and he commands us to do something that's actually practical to point to the fact that it's been done. I don't know. I'll work that out more later. But I think what we need to remember is that when Jesus is talking about communion, when you look at that cup and when you look at that bread, Man, look to Jesus. He was broken for you. And his blood was shed for your sins. Appropriated on the doorpost of your heart. In your mind, Lord, I believe you're the lamb that was slain and consume him. And I have my life in you. 
And that life, by the way, is to be a life of unleavened bread. Ready for the salvation. No room for sin. That's the picture. As we are a new creation in Jesus, look in verse 27, the middle of verse 27. What does he say? Drink all of you. He goes, I want you to drink this. What's he saying? Believe. Believe what I'm telling you. Jesus longed for them to drink, to believe, to, to have them have him be their life, true life. And so too, today, his spirit is longing and urging the same for anyone to come and drink and eat of him and have real life. How does that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart over sin of his righteousness and the judgment to come. And he is presenting you the gracious and merciful son of, of, of God broken that you would be forgiven totally. How many of you need forgiveness? How many of you like complete and total and utter? How many of like your sins cast as far as the East is from the West? Me too. How's that happen? Believe. Say thank you. <laughs> Receive forgiveness. It's undeserved. Why would God do that? Because I've done X, Y, and Z, and this is who I am. Yep. He came to save you, you dirty, filthy sinner. Matt. Why did he do that? For God so loved. For God so loved. I don't understand. He just loves. But love does not excuse sin. Love paid for sin. And you must put the blood on the doorpost. You must believe. That's how you receive forgiveness. And so it's appropriate for Sunday as we come to the table. We have these beautiful elements of our Jesus. And I pray that it's within the spirit of what we discussed that we would come to the table and take it back to our seats and just spend time meditating um, in just a second, um, thinking about his sacrifice and his great mercy and love for you. And if you have, you've got people around you, you want to pray with, do that and receive it together. If you need to ask for forgiveness from one another, now is the time because this is the greatest place to do that. And let his spirit just cleanse us. Drink deeply, drink freely. And let his grace just overflow you. And so I'm going to pray and then we'll, you guys can come up to the tables and take it back and just take it at will. And then um, we'll sing a song together. So father, we just want to thank you so much for your great, great mercy, your love that you've lavished upon us. Just think of Ephesians chapter two.
And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and once you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in Christ, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. You alone have done. Thank you for your great mercy. And it's in your name we commune with you now. Just invite you to be here and be present and work in our hearts. In your name, amen. You can come to the table.